Hi, everybody. It's Jonah Goldberg. Uh, you may know me from such uh, podcasts as The Remnant or The Dispatch Podcast or uh, Zinc and You, Partners in Freedom. Um, I am here tonight as the host of uh, this here thing uh, with uh, no less than than Kevin Williamson and um, and Declan Garvey's mustache, um, which is going to be a problem. I mean, so like Kevin's got the full beard. I got like the sort of normal beard. And uh, Declan is proving that sometimes have, less I isn't more. Yeah. <laughs> I had what you had yes until about yesterday, Jonah. And yeah. then I decided uh-huh. to go with this temporarily. Temporarily. I mean, you, you you can't accuse any of us of being paganophobes, which I believe is the correct word. Kevin will correct me for fear of facial hair. Um, but uh yeah. All right. So Declan, is, so, Declan uh, is team John Bolton, obviously, here is what this is. <laughs> He's uh he might declare for the presidency if nobody else does. He promised. Yeah. Yeah. If nobody else does. Sure. Yes. Frankly, if nobody else does, I will declare for the presidency. <laughs> um so uh tonight is the State of the Union address. And when we were talking about this in Slack, um basically only Kevin and I were available. Uh for people who don't know, I'm in Fort Lauderdale for states for reasons that are too secret to discuss and um uh and i said okay well if kevin if kevin is available and i'm doing this we're going to need at least one person and to defend the state of the union so i think that's going to have to be declan and declan said no 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 uh we're gonna have to get somebody else because i won't defend it either so um why don't we just start here before we get into the lowest form of punditry, really, which is predicting what someone is going to say in an hour, um, and just talk about the institution itself. Kevin, Kevin, I associate you with hatred of the State of the Union more than I do with Declan because he's not a hater. Um, what is your uh, what is your gripe with it? I made a little bit of a thing of it, I guess, over the uh, the years. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm a I'm a small R Republican, and I would like to see our government behave like the government of a democratic republic and not like some sort of, uh, you know, miniature Napoleonic imperial nonsensical thing. And the state of the union is, is in many ways the worst of the expressions of the kind of presidential cult. It's very ritualized. It's very ceremonial. It doesn't mean anything. Um, nothing that ever gets proposed in the state of the union ever actually happens in the world. Um, but it's this kind of, you know, American version of the speech from the throne. And it's, um, I mean, the whole thing is gross. It's the, uh, you know, from the ceremonial invocation at the beginning and the president of the United States, and he walks in in this kind of weird triumph and people try to get close to him. And it's just, it really, it pushes my, my, my buttons in, in lots and lots of ways. So I think that, um, you know, the one thing I really had hope for the Trump presidency was that he would just tweet it because that's what he really liked to And I think <laughs> you actually probably could tweet the State of the Union. Now, Joe Biden being Joe Biden, he's not going to tweet it, but he could do a Facebook post. You know, I think that Facebook yeah. would be about his speed, about the right thing. And, uh, you know, you all uh, live in Washington or thereabouts and you spend more time there. And so you see this stuff more closely even than I do. But I remember being there a couple of years ago and there was some crazy motorcade and it was like 50 cars and I mean, mm-hmm. not 50 cars, it was security and stuff. And it was like the secretary of agriculture going to lunch or something like that. We just, we need to dial all that stuff back. And the state of the union is um, a good place to start, I think. So Declan, defend yourself. Why do you love the state of the union so much? Well, I, I, I need to take issue with you said that I'm not a hater. Kevin's a hater. I, I hate plenty of things. I just maybe I keep it to myself a little bit more. Um, but that'll change as I as I age. Um, I mean, what are you saying, Declan? <laughs> as, as, as this grows into a Fu Manchu, it just really, you know, brings out the the uh, the hater in you. But I mean, you you touched on a lot of it, Kevin, I think the. My least favorite part uh, of the State of the Union every year is the analysis from reporters over who stands and claps for which lines. Um, it's mm-hmm. it's treated as, you know, this is how you read the tea leaves of individual districts and, you know, who which which lawmakers are going to be more willing to work with Biden on X, Y, Z issue. It's literally just the the, the worst 
form of punditry, I think that, uh, that we engage in here in Washington. It, Jonah, you mentioned that, um, you can't predict what somebody's going to say in an hour speech. I actually can because I'm part of a super <laughs> secret white house correspondence association club where I get excerpts of the speech emailed out, um, an hour ahead of time. And I can tell you that in about 45 minutes to an hour, Biden's going to say something along the lines of to my Republican friends, if we could work together in the last Congress, there is no reason we can't work together in this new Congress. So that's exclusive to the dispatch. You can't, you know, say that you heard that anywhere else. That's breaking news um, that Biden's going to call on Republicans to work with him on his agenda in the State of the Union tonight. So stay well, you actually do that. a dramatic reading of, of all the excerpts <laughs> you have, I think maybe in a kind of Shakespearean uh, voice. I think that would be fun. Well, did you know that Biden's economic plan is about investing in places and people that have been forgotten? Ah, that's that's mm. pretty big. Um, mm. The story of America is a story of progress and resilience. And I'm going to stop doing this now because we're going to yeah, lose yeah. the voters that we haven't or the, the viewers that we've already got. I hear he's so, also uh, very strongly against cancer. <laughs> we, will, cancer. we might hear about I, I, that as well. So one to make this a little bipartisan. Um, I have to say it is it is in my top 10 criticisms of Ronald Reagan that Ronald Reagan is the guy who introduced the practice of using humans as props. Yes. in the state of the union right he's the guy who introduced and here we have the one-legged soybean farmer with a unibrow who <laughs> suffered from the last hurricane and, yes <laughs> and i can't stand that stuff um i also feel like I, i'm not trying to say we couldn't predict i just think it's, it's really dumb to like make serious pronouncements about what's going to happen in an hour because it's so easily falsifiable <laughs> in an hour. You, ha you have to make predictions about stuff like three months from now, right? So it sounds like really interesting analysis. Um, I you know, there's stuff like who's, who's in the first lady's box stuff is really, really royalist. Like, you know, in the, in the old days when, um, you know, your, your social importance was based on your proximity physically to the king. And I mean, I don't even know why there was a first lady's in the place. I mean, she's, it's not a real office. She's just someone who's married to the president. So, so given your dislike of the fake formality of all this, I will make a, one prediction, which is that I think that the era of heckling is fully here and we're going to hear Republicans, uh, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene is planning on bringing a giant white helium balloon um and I, i'm not making that up and uh i don't know if they'll let her get it in the room um i think there was some pressure on mccarthy i don't think he's going to do it but apparently you know he was asked about this about whether he was going to tear up biden's speech um the way nancy pelosi had torn up or whatever um lauren bobert margie Taylor green last year heckled and i think you know i mean the the, the dam was really broken with the with the with the was it joe wilson you lie thing under obama um, and I suspect though, that it is, I, I tweeted about this this morning. It, it's sort of a, Bapt, a, a Baptist and bootleggers problem where the Democrat Biden, I bet you is going to put language in the speech that he hopes gets booed. And then he's going to use the boo to condemn and be disappointed by the incivility of Republicans and Republicans are going to take the bait, or at least some are. And it will be the benefit of Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert if they do it, and it'll be the benefit of the White House if they do it, and it'll be the detriment of the Republican Party and the country if they do it. But all the incentives are screwed up. Does anybody disagree with me? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, after after the the near physical violence that we saw during the speakership fight, I mean, I I don't think we'll get there uh, tonight, but I wouldn't rule out us getting there within like the next 10 state of the unions. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, we can always, we can always, you know, thank our lucky stars that there's not a bleeding Sumner, uh, on the, on the floor of the house right well, now. Well, that's one of the problems is that walking sticks have really gone out of fashion, you know, and <laughs> if Marjorie Taylor Greene's going to pummel someone with a helium balloon, it's just not going to be the same. <laughs> um, all right. So, uh, I think I've exhausted all of my interest in the State of the Union address, except I think there's one question we should chew on for a second. 
because it will provide a nice segue to another topic. What does Biden say about the balloon in the State of the Union address? And what should he say? And what do you guys make of the whole thing, generally speaking? Declan, you can go first. You wrote the morning dispatch this morning. I've seen some reporting. uh, Again, this is an easily falsifiable uh, claim that uh, that I could look silly in in a little bit about, but I've seen some reporting that he's not going to mention it at all. Um, that they wrote the speech was written prior to. I mean, for for those of you who who don't know, the the State of the Union speech is an absolute Frankenstein monster that's like cobbled together by fifty different people over the course of like months. Um, with different department heads fighting to see what's going to make it in and, and different priorities. It's, you know, it's not a well-written speech ever. Um, it's always just a laundry list of here are, here's a list of things the department of agriculture has done. Now here's a list of things the department of commerce has done. And, and so, um, to talk about the balloon, they'd have to boot something else out of the speech, uh, and I don't think they they really want to do that. And they also don't want to, um, I don't think it's a winning issue for them uh, regardless. And, and we'll get into this a little bit more, but um, you know, whether or not you agree that it was the, the more responsible thing to wait until it was over the uh, Bay in South Carolina to shoot it down. Uh, it's very easy for Republicans to point and say, I would have shot it down immediately. This had no business floating over the United States. And that's a pretty straightforward argument that people can understand. And so I don't think they want to just wade into that even a little bit. I have strong thoughts on that, but Kevin, do you uh, have any predictions about whether there's going to be a balloon lacuna? A rhetorical Uh, balloon gap? I think if he does talk about it, he's going to make it sound like it was Osama bin Laden, you know, that, you know, Barack Obama (laughs) got him and I got the balloon and that's about the same thing. (laughs) I mean, the balloon has been such a great, you know, story just for this particularly dumb time of year. You all saw the picture of J.D. Vance, I assume, on Twitter, sitting outside looking up with the rifle. And if you notice, he doesn't have sights on the rifle, (laughs) right? The sights are folded down anyway. And so a guy sitting around with a loaded gun looking up at the sky and uh, no way to aim it is is a perfect metaphor for politics of our time, I think. So I think we should have balloons every day. I just want to point out, and I just thought of this now, but there was another hero who had to destroy a giant sphere, and his name was Luke Skywalker. And he turned off his sights and used his instincts Mm. to destroy another Death Star. So just, you know, think about that for a second. No, I I stand corrected. On this this notion, like, I, 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 I agree with you, Declan, that it's not a winning issue for Biden. That's fine. Okay, so that's that's one positive, that's one credible argument for not including balloon talk in the State of the Union. But and I am not nearly as obsessed as our friend John Podoritz is with the balloon. I, I think they've now done seventeen hundred straight podcasts and commentary about <laughs> the balloon, and uh, like they did a whole podcast today. I just started it before I got here, so I don't know how it ends. But the question of the podcast is. Uh, Will Biden talk about the balloon at the State of the Union address? And Pod's point in the first 15 minutes, at least, is it's the most important, biggest story of the last week. It's all anybody can talk about. And he's got to figure out something to say. Now, that may be wrong uh, for the political reasons that you say, Declan. But, like, let's just take a second to ponder the demosclerosis that is involved in your the first part of your explanation, which is that the... State of the Union was written before this, but just let's just stipulate for the sake of argument that the balloon thing was a huge national security issue. Okay. The idea that you can't take anything out of the State of the Union from the Department of Agriculture's paragraph or the Department of Labor's paragraph to talk about something that the entire country is concerned about and talking about because this was a delicately choreographed and balanced approach to the permanent bureaucracy in Washington is bananas. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying that like if we are really in the point at the point where like the the soybean subsidy crowd at the Department of Agriculture <laughs> is more important than an allegedly a you know a Sputnik moment, that's that's really weird and that's a real bad sign. 
it's those ethanol guys who have the real veto power over things, not the soybean guys, I think. But you know, thinking about it, if, if you or I were writing a column and like there was some big news that required us to rewrite the first paragraph or a couple of paragraphs, you just go do it. And right. that's just a column. This is the state of the union. This is something that's going to be uh, you know, poured over by historians for God knows what reason, but they will uh in the future at some point. You would think that they would want to get, you know current events in there but speaking of rewriting columns i i forget which sports writer uh said this on a on a podcast recently but it made me laugh so hard that uh, you know as a baseball columnist you have to file 30 to minutes to an hour after the game's over so you're writing the story over the course of the game and if something dramatically changes in the ninth inning everybody gets frustrated because you have to tear everything up and start over he didn't want to do that this one time so he just kept his old column and then added a sentence at the end that said or so we thought and then <laughs> added one paragraph at the end and just summarized the last <laughs> the, the most important part um so that's something that that we can all uh take forward in our in our punditry that is that okay. is some world record book laziness right there. I like it. <laughs> so I have uh, I have introduced some skepticism about whether or not our friends at commentary are right about the importance of the story um, about the balloon. Where do you guys come down? Is this balloon story as big a deal as some are making it, or is it the nothing burger that other people are making it? I think it's a very big deal because it sort of makes objective and uh, and visible and kind of concrete something that everyone sort of knows is going on and, and a lot of people have a kind of vague awareness of. We know that there is a tremendous amount of Chinese espionage directed at the United States. We know that some of it goes far beyond kind of what's generally accepted as as, as norms for that kind of thing in, in, in current international relations. Some of it's really, truly outrageous stuff with, uh, you know, police stations operating around the world and and various things like that. So sometimes it's it's a little version of the big thing that you can kind of get your head around that ends up being the thing that's really politically uh important it's kind of like why sex scandals always become big news but financial scandals don't because sex scandals are easier to understand and they're kind of more mm -hmm. discreet um you know with borders and that sort of thing so i think that um my, my read on this anyway is that there are a lot of people out there people who follow politics and including people who follow politics but not sort of obsessively the way you know we're used to people around us doing that really do care about this story and um and that it's likely to stick around for a while. And also, I kind of think they might not stop doing it. Or even mm -hmm. if they do stop with the balloon stuff, there's going to be other things that come up because there's a million things you can point to of evidence of various kinds of Chinese espionage going on in the United States. And I think there's going to be a lot more attention paid to that now. It's going to be a story that I think has some uh, kind of self-sustaining power. Yeah, I I think to, to that point, Kevin, I... Even though he's no longer a dispatch contributor, I still follow Klon Kitchen on on all mm. of his postings, and he's been talking uh, a lot recently. Um, this this past week, like we're all freaking out about the balloon. Everybody has downloaded the balloon onto their phone, essentially, right. and <laughs> and is letting the balloon, um, you know, monitor their their phone usage and and putting Chinese made drones in their you know. It, there's all sorts of things that are spying on us that that we don't Cell care tower so, shenanigans all right. sorts of crazy stuff right yeah. so that's the, i think that's a great point that this i mean ideally um should serve as a wake-up call to kind of all of that thing as well i it, it's the most boring answer but i honestly think we don't know enough yet to know whether it's a big deal or not i mean if you take the pentagon at face value which you know you can or you can't um they say that they were able to interfere any date with any data collection uh and and protect national secrets and what have you if that's true and that that's why they waited three or four days to shoot it down over uh the ocean then I, that's kind of not the end of the world in my mind but if that's not true and you know they this balloon was floating over montana to gain information from uh our nuclear silo fields there or, or launch fields there and and doing so with radio frequencies that satellites can't and that's why they were using a balloon then that's a huge deal um and and i think people jumping to one conclusion or the other without 
knowing that information uh, is is kind of irresponsible. Yeah, I, 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 I'm with you on the we don't know enough front because there is a non and the, and the morning dispatch nodded to this, right? I mean, there was there's a non-trivial chance that this was a, just a true screw up by the Chinese military or you know or some you know officials and um and that doesn't mean it's not important though right because it is now symbolizing this thing that um um that people are now all of a sudden worked up about and i i, I have sympathy for Klan. you know he's been like <laughs> running around screaming about tiktok and everyone thinks he's you know why don't you like you know stupid skits by 14 year old girls and he has to explain it like 500 times a week you know that's not my problem uh there are plenty of non-espionage related reasons to not like skits from 14 year old girls by the way agreed agreed yes. but um uh the so the balloon thing could have been an accident but that doesn't mean it's not a sort of sputniky kind of moment if it does galvanize popular um imagination and i could you know, I could see this actually being a great thing because we kind of needed a Sputniki kind of moment, right? We needed something to call attention to this. And what's funny is like, um, Kevin, you remember this. Remember how people, a lot of our people were losing their minds about the Ebola case where there was one guy in like Kansas yeah. who brought Ebola in. There are certain, and I've become too much of a Jonathan Haidt guy, but there are certain things that just sneak past the blood brain barrier in ways that other things don't and the idea of this giant free-floating middle finger you know flying over america from china um feels like this intrusion like this this sacrilegious kind of thing and for a lot of people and um i'm not saying it's i don't think it's particularly rational in a lot of ways um yeah. given that we've had geosynchronous satellites spying on us round the clock for like 30 years um the idea that like oh but they sent a balloon now we're pissed um is just <laughs> yeah. a little weird but it, it that's how the human brain works sometimes yeah if you want to put on your tinfoil hat though you know who's going to be at the state of the union tonight bono hmm. bono was in a band called u2 <laughs> scary powers circle. spy plane yeah, it's, uh, it's, yeah there are no coincidences jonah that's right that's right um yeah and so uh, on the and but also on the pentagon thing about whether you know we should believe them or not i was much more inclined to give them the benefit of the doubt about this stuff um about the jamming of it and all this kind of thing except first of all i never like having been to alaska quite a few times the idea that there is no safe place to down a balloon over alaska uh, from the Aleutian Islands until you get to South Carolina is just not particularly plausible to me. But more importantly, they completely screwed up this. It happened in the, under the Trump administration story. And like, what do we have? I mean, like, like tracking Santa is really important, but like NORAD is supposed to notice things that are the size of three buses floating over the United States. And if like, and they tried to make it sound like Trump was a wuss for not doing anything about it. And then they had to admit that like Trump didn't know about it because the Pentagon didn't know about it until after it happened three times. Like WTF. That's yeah. bad. I want to give him the benefit of the doubt for this stuff. And every time I hear about, you know, some, you know, crazy story, the CIA was behind this uh, Iranian rocket scientist getting killed in a car wreck or something. I want to believe that stuff because I want him to be competent, but I don't believe that stuff. I think they're basically not very good at their jobs. And, and um, if I disappear after this, they're better than I thought. But still, <laughs> I don't think they're, they're I don't think they're very good at it. Uh, this, I, I this was, that, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Well, partly that's, um, I, I don't want to hijack and go off in a different policy direction, but partly that's kind of a, you know, border state thing, I think, that, you know, watching the federal government uh, just be so utterly ineffective at kind of one of the basic things it's supposed to do and seeing that sort of, you know, day in and day out. It's um, it makes you doubt their ability to do big things in a focused and effective way. You, Declan, you're about to say 
wise thing. It's yeah. It's was it was it George H W Bush uh, with the line "mistakes were made." That was before my time, but the the uh, use. I, of I the believe that's a Nixon voice. era. Okay, I think yeah. that, co- that comes from the Nixon era. Yeah, because the I think it's being supplanted by what the NORAD general said yesterday, which was. Uh, we essentially some we might have had a quote unquote domain awareness gap uh, to explain um, Which why is they straight did not out of Doctor Strange love. I mean, right. <laughs> Which is why they did not see the three bus size balloon floating around. Um, so, you know, if 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 you mess up something at work at some point this week, just tell your boss there was a slight domain awareness gap. Yeah, it's like after the fourth cocktail, you have a domain awareness gap. <laughs> um. All right, so we should um, we should move on to uh, more to ranker punditry. Um, where to begin? Um, where to begin? Uh, how about with uh, Donald Trump? Apparently, this afternoon was going fully ballistic against um, Ron DeSantis. Apparently, he reposted someone accusing him of being a sex offender. Or, pedophile groomer or something like that. Um, where do you guys see the state of play right now? I, I don't think that's a relatively uh, strong position for Trump to be in uh, before DeSantis has even declared himself as a candidate that he's reposted. It. Unfortunately, I'm on Truth Social for uh, all my sins. And uh, well, we I saw you to be so. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, and and so I'm able to see this. It's it's I I don't even want to like justify it by explaining it, but it's basically just a blurred out, pixelated image that appears to be from like the '90s uh, of and and of somebody who kind of looks like Ron DeSantis. It might be, it might not be, but standing next to three women and just some person saying um, that it's when he was a high school teacher and students uh, and just insinuate, I I wrote down Trump wrote, that's not Ron. Is it? He would never do such a thing. No way. Question mark. Um, So protects himself from any uh, defamation claims. He's just asking questions, Um, Mm -hmm. but it's not, I mean, I don't think if he felt secure in his leadership of, of this race and his ability to win it, that he would be doing this six months before DeSantis even, decides to to get in the race you know i kind of think that um one of the things that's going to cause me to uh want to pull my hair out but not be able to of course for genetic reasons um is that over the next few months we're going to hear a lot of republicans saying well donald trump is a crazy person like he's he he's a nut he's just this offhand off the off the tracks unhinged guy what happened and I'm mm. going to be screaming at them. He was that way <laughs> 10 years ago. Yeah. He was that way when you idiots nominated him and elected him. And um, this is not new stuff for him. He's right. always been this guy. He's always been this kind of, you know, crackpot, conspiracy theory, um, slander first, ask questions uh, second sort of guy. And um, I don't think that it hurts him with his basic you know committed base i think that those folks are just um essentially cultists and nothing's ever going to change their mind about him i will yeah but disagree with that briefly i i I do think like in in 2016 when he's doing this kind of thing to ted cruz and jeb bush and marco rubio and and the list goes on those guys were essentially in a different political party than than Trump was at the time. They were both running for the Republican nomination, but no allegiance whatsoever between them, different sets of voters, kind of a totally different mindset. DeSantis was, he was in office uh, or, or in some sort of office before Trump, but really was born and bred of the Trump era, made his name uh, during that time and has modeled himself after Trump in a lot of ways. And I think like Trump turning on one of his own, somebody that his base also likes um, is going to, you know, people cheered Trump on when he made fun of Jeb. I don't think that Republicans are going to, they like Ron DeSantis, even if they might prefer um, Trump to DeSantis. I think that they are going to be pretty uh, taken aback that Trump's 
calling somebody that they like a pedophile. Um, that's going to ring a little bit different than uh, blaming Bush for 9-11 or whatever else Trump did in 2016. Um, it's it's just a different... I, I mean, I've talked to some people uh, recently who voted for Trump, but see this kind of stuff and and say like, what <laughs> I like Ron DeSantis. Why why is he doing this? Um, and and so I mean maybe maybe we'll have more people getting the wake up call that you're talking about, Kevin. Yeah, I I, I think you're both right. For there for some people, literally, there's no questioning Trump no matter what. But for other people this does shake them. And I think the best single example is a lot of people don't know who he is, but there's this guy, Bill Mitchell, right? That's his name, who was as crazy a hardcore Trumpist. Like some people for years thought maybe he was a parody account on Twitter because he was just so obsessed with how awesome Trump was. There's no such thing as a boulder too heavy that Trump couldn't lift and all that kind of stuff. And he's now like, that's it. I've had my, that's my last straw. How you could go after a decent man like Ron DeSantis. And it does call into question, like, this is the thing that, that, you know, you, that broke the spell for you. Like, you know, you were okay with him calling Ben Carson a pedophile, but it's only when he calls Ron DeSantis one that like, oh my gosh, that's terrible. Um, and so I, but regardless of where the number is, right, who it pulls, like how many people it turns off versus it turns on, it's not additive, right? I mean, there's nobody who wasn't in Trump's column who will now be in Trump's column because he goes after DeSantis, right? So it's a little bit like, you know, the the salesman who, you know, he says, sure, we lose money on every sale, but we'll make it up in volume. Like, I, there's there's not a lot of people moving into Trump's column when he does this stuff now, is there? I see you kind of shaking your head, Kevin. So I think there are a lot of crazy people and degenerates out there and uh, Trump may inspire some of them to uh, greater political action that they've engaged in in the past. Um, maybe I'm overcorrecting here because I thought it was so ludicrous in 2016 that we had ever be nominated or elected president. And I was very, very surprised on election night as a lot of people were. So, um, my estimate of his uh, political prospects keeps going up as my estimate of the American public keeps going down. I guess that's the uh, that's the trade-off there. And um, well, the math there checks out. <laughs> yeah, I, think, yeah. I think it. I think it does. Listen, I don't think I don't think it's very likely right now that Trump's going to be the nominee or that he's going to be elected president of the United States again. Um, I don't think that's the most likely outcome uh, that we're looking at. But um, I don't think it should be written off with uh, contempt and derision either. And I don't think that it's uh, the sort of danger that you can underestimate, that you should underestimate rather. I, I think the only world in which this kind of stuff, the the truth social posts and the, the gross innuendo makes any sort of sense for Trump is if he is trying to keep DeSantis from getting in the race at all. Um, mm. And just kind of like, Hey, just so you know, if you do this, we're going to make your life living hell and we're going to go after your wife and we're going to go after your kids. And and just uh, he has the, this army of uh, degenerate minions on online that are going to uh, really, really, really make it difficult for you to run for president and uh, just really unpleasant. Uh, and so I, I've heard spell of of kind of whisper campaigns of we're going to go after Casey DeSantis, who's Ron's wife with, you know, slanders and, and rumors and all these various things. Um, we're seeing it spill out now on truth social with this random, uh, pedophilia accusation. I, I don't think it deters Ron DeSantis. He doesn't seem like somebody who's going to be deterred by that kind of thing. Um, but it is the only way that, that it makes sense for him to be doing this right now. Yeah. That's actually, I think a really good point. And, and we know that that worked, the club for growth with Mitch Daniels, right? They <laughs> they just made it very clear that they're gonna right. just be grotesque towards him, and um, and he was like, "Why? No, why bother?" Um, but I agree with you. I don't think DeSantis is gonna do that. I skipped ahead a topic um, that uh, I wanted to get to tonight, um, 
and it's sort of understandable because the topic is kind of forgettable by which i mean kamala harris mm -hmm. and um the there are long knives out for harris um washington post had a big piece last week about how democrats are concerned about her um the new york times had one out uh what two days ago that was even more brutal um so i guess i i have a two-part question um <clears throat> one what do you think of kamal Harris? and two what is your best guess about who is behind these stories coming out about her i go to you declan oh no or kevin doesn't matter i defer to declan please and his mustache <laughs> defer to kevin um I remind me of the first question. I remember the second question. What do you think about the vice president of the United States? What do I think about her? Um, How's she I, doing? What I, I you know? I, what are I think I think her anonymous detractors are correct in that she will not win a presidential election, uh, probably ever, uh, and that it would be a mistake for Democrats to nominate her. I think that's kind of the impetus of of these stories uh, over the past couple weeks here. I also think that she was um, put in a very <laughs> difficult position, uh, kind of one, the historic nature of, of her election or being the first woman, being the first uh, non-white vice president and all that comes with like there's a lot of festivity and, and, and celebration of that. And then you get to the reality of who she is and she <laughs> it's it's a little bit of a you know, it's a little bit of. A letdown when you kind of see what she's done over the past two years um versus all the hype that that led to her election um and and i also think that she got a really uh crappy set of issues from from the biden team i think they were like we don't want to deal with immigration you deal with immigration we don't want to deal with voting rights you deal with voting rights um and then she's kind of taken been the face of the the abortion issue in the in the post row uh world and these are all things that like given the makeup of Congress throughout Biden's term, we weren't going to pass uh, federal voting legislation in anything close to what Democrats were proposing. We weren't going to do comprehensive immigration reform and we weren't going to, uh, you know, codify Roe into law. Like these are, she was set up to fail on those issues. And so um, I, I think it's smart <laughs> of, of Biden and his team to basically shove it off on her so that she takes heat on a lot of this stuff and can kind of deflect a little bit of like, oh, well, we put Kamala on and it's like, if, it, if you're not happy with, <laughs> with what the, the state of the border is, you know, talk to Kamala, not me. Um, and, and so I think it's tough. Uh, but at the same time, I, it's just, you know, it's the job and it's, <laughs> this is why a lot of people don't want to be vice president is because it's not a pretty good job. Well, in some ways it's a great job, right? I mean, it's a job essentially with no formal constitutionally defined responsibilities. You know, you're just there and occasionally you cast a, a tie breaking vote in the Senate if it comes up. Um, but that's really the problem for someone like Harris is that the choice in that job is the choice between being a scapegoat, which is what she's going to end up being, and being a non-entity. You, know, you can be one or the other. And um, she could have been a perfectly fine vice president if um, she weren't trying to be presidential candidate in waiting or being forced to be these things. Uh, sort of, you know, ersatz co-president, uh, you know, specialized president for this, that and the other issue. I think that you are right that um, Biden certainly set her up to fail, I think probably intentionally on the immigration stuff uh, and the border stuff, because Democrats have to fail on that. You know, they can't actually um, achieve a bipartisan compromise that would effectively solve those problems because they're held hostage by a certain element of their base that um, would see this as uh, betrayal, that would see anything other than, you know, kind of blanket amnesty and uh, legalization and something quite close to open borders i think in some ways among certain people on the on the, on the democratic side is the only you know kind of humane and uh, tolerable outcome which of course is just politically impossible not only is it politically impossible it's also not what joe biden wants he is not uh someone who is uh, an open borders kind of guy he has a very deep vein of 
economic nationalism in his uh, in his thinking and uh of course who he ends up sounding like a lot on this stuff sometimes is is of course donald trump uh, who sounded like bernie sanders back in 2015 year in 2016 they all had sort of the same you know ideas about this stuff that uh you know it was a billionaire's plot to drive down the uh, wages of the working man and all that kind of thing so you know you ask what do i think about harris and, and the answer is i don't almost ever and i think that's probably the best <laughs> you can say for um you know, I hadn't, I hadn't given Harris uh, a minute's thought until uh, we decided to do this as a, as a topic for today. Then suddenly, you know, I remembered vaguely reading some stuff about her in the paper. I think that um, probably the best thing she did for herself was actually say no to Biden on some things. You know, they kind of wanted to make her the uh, formula shortage czar, apparently. Mm-hmm. And she just said, no, not going to do it. Uh, <laughs> um, what are you going to do, fire me? And um, so I think that, um, you know, for someone like, how to put it? The only happy people in the Senate are the senators who know they're never going to be president. You know, the ones who think they're always one or two elections away from being president um, are miserable being senators because that's not what they want to do. They want to do something else. Uh, whereas people like Mitch McConnell, who you know, he's happy being a senator, he's going to be a senator. That's all he's ever going to do. And um, he's he can he can kind of be good at the job. The only people who are happy being vice president are people who know they're never going to be president of the United States. And mm-hmm. um, I think Harris, actually, if she would get it through her head that she's not really a very good politician, that she almost certainly wouldn't have been elected to the Senate from any state other than California. And um, that she's probably never going to be president. She's probably never going to be a very credible candidate. The last time she ran for the Democratic nomination, she did really, really poorly and showed herself to be just not good at that particular thing. Then she could be a happy vice president. You know, she could do what vice presidents need to do, uh, support the main guy in whatever ways that needs to be done and uh, just do that sort of non-job to the best it can be done so two things i two points i would make one there are certain kind of issues where you can tell people are in a sort of beltway mainstream media bubble um by how they not so much what they think but how they respond to people who disagree with them and uh, Steve and I, we have this running conversation because he does meet the press quite often. I do, you know, all these CNN shows and actually I'll be on Meet the Press this Sunday. So there you go. Um, and when you tell people that you think count, that Harris has been at best mediocre, if not quasi disastrous, they think you're crazy. They don't they don't know what you're how you could formulate those words. I was on CNN the other night and I with the with the guy who wrote the Washington Post story and with Karen Finney, who's a very nice lady. We're kind of becoming buddies because we're on TV together all the time. She's a Democratic consultant and and the host of the show. And I just basically said, I don't think Harris is a very good vice president and I don't think she's a very good politician. And they all looked at me like I was crazy. And when I had these conversations in the green room, um, which I'm not supposed to betray stuff, but I would just say sort of generically speaking, I have said in the past, I thought Biden's selection of Harris was one of his biggest mistakes. And it's like, like if you were home, like Louis C.K. has this bit where he's complaining about people who complain about flying and how awesome flying is. And he says, if you tell people, if you complain that you sat on the runway for an hour, people like people will turn off the water while they're doing the dishes and turn around and say, what happened to you? You know, and it's like, that's the reaction I get when I say Kamala Harris is a bad vice, bad politician. They can't comprehend it. And, um, and yet the poll numbers are obvious about this, right? I mean, we don't have to get into like convoluted theories. She's been more unpopular than Biden from the beginning. Uh, The majority of Democrats don't want her to run, don't like her, don't want Biden to run either. And yet, and so anyway, my criminology about this is I think these stories are somewhat planted by the Biden White House to either encourage her to shuffle off the ticket, jeebus out of the rest of the party into understanding that they have no other choice but him for 2024. Um, don't know what you think about that, but that's my own sort of like pocket theory about this. Well, I don't think you can underrate the power of the Buttigieg machine. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's true. Fair point. Fair point. Which is really behind everything. It's just pretty much the Illuminati and and the Buttigieg network. 
it's um, the, the the piece does get to I, I wrote down one line here from this is the New York Times piece that we're talking about. Some say the party's biggest challenge would be finding a way to sideline her without inflaming key Democratic constituencies that would take offense. And I think that's kind of what you're getting at there a little bit, Jonah, in that it's black middle aged ladies in South Carolina. Right. Like, <laughs> yes, which, very important. Like, very important. I think th this is this is why people in those green rooms and people in D.C., and just Democrats in general don't understand the disconnect is like, because on paper, she's a great candidate. She's a black woman in her either late forties or early fifties, prosecutor, Senator, vice president uh, has the resume. And, and so if you're just viewing it entirely through that lens, then uh, it makes sense that, that Biden picked her, but then you have to watch her, exist and interact with voters and interact with the press and you know the, the the video on her birthday last year where she shouted surprise herself then walked into a room of people holding a surprise party for her <laughs> is my favorite thing i think i've mentioned it on on dispatch live before but it, mm. it's like she's just kind of funny and 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 so it's uh you know i think that's going to be an issue is Obviously, the, the vice president is presumed to be the heir apparent um, most of the time with with these things, and especially when you have a vice or a president who's as old as Biden is. But if the Democrats want to win, they have to kind of jump the line there and 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 move her out of the the succession plan. Um, and that's going to be difficult, given the kind of their, their focus on identity politics. When the okay. when the time story came out. You know, Eric Johnson uh, of Dallas, America's mayor, uh, took, to, took to Twitter to complain about it. And he said, you know, let me translate. The New York Times just reported that some leading white Democrats want to get rid of Kamala Harris, but don't know how to do it without upsetting black women and especially black women. And I think that, you know, pretty well sums it up. But I also think that some leading white Democrats is a pretty good example of the people who write and read the New York Times and, and the Washington Post. And that this is a, you know, particular kind of slice of that um you know upper middle class professional world that spends a lot of time talking to itself and and not to other people and i kind of am surprised in some ways at your experience of people looking at you like you're wearing an armadillo helmet when you say she's not a very good politician because they clearly don't think she's a very good politician either so i don't know if this is something that's a genuinely held belief or you're just saying something that people think you're not supposed to say we all yeah, saw the polling I, averages during the 2020 primary. Like nobody, yeah, nobody they know. said they supported they, her. They know yeah. she's not a good politician. Yeah, I, I suspect it's a little from column A and a little from column B. I remember having an argument. I remember having this argument with lots of people when Obama was president. I was like, I would try to explain to them. So you know how East Coast liberals find just George W. Bush offensive in his demeanor, the way he talks, it, sort of his cultural resonance. And they say, oh, yeah, you know, that's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. And I say, okay, you need to understand that it's not racism necessarily, but Barack Obama does that to a lot of people on the right, right? He just, there's uh, that college professor approach rubs people the wrong way and they just couldn't grasp that it wasn't racist. And I was like, right. you know, there are a lot of arrogant white <laughs> smart people out there that bother you know fly over red country you know red state america too um all right so we got we got to get to some questions uh and i say fly over with love by the way um we should probably note there just that uh, something in my mind has changed about more of it was racism than i thought i agree with that i agree with that entirely i agree with that entirely. at the time i thought yeah racism may be eight nine percent of it yeah um, 30. Yeah. I mean, although it's sort of like, you know, when they say, you know, certain diseases, it's like one in a million to get it, right. but it's one in one. And if you get it right, I mean, so there's some people who are just flat out racist <laughs> and then there are, it's, it's figuring out the people for whom they weren't aware there was a little racism to it, mm. but it wasn't like, and over about, you know, it wasn't the determinative thing. Okay, we have a bunch of questions from people, which I have been meaning to get to for a while. We'll stay on uh, the the vice presidential category for a minute since that's where we are. Um, so where, gosh, 
I asked Ryan to send me a bunch and he sent me a bunch. Um, let's see. Uh, someone, where'd it go? Uh, can we agree? This sort of gets to Kevin's point about once you realize you're never going to be president. Um, oh yeah, John Doe, I don't believe that's his real name, asks, um, as things currently stand, has the best American vice president of the 21st century been Dick Cheney? Um, he's Dick Cheney is certainly the only guy who fits your explanation about happy vice presidents because Dick Cheney never was going to run for president, right? Yeah. Does anybody disagree? The 21st century is kind of limiting because we're really only talking about three people. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, anybody I, else? To, I uh, was 13 when Dick Cheney left office, so I don't have a ton of uh, strong. Why are you on right? this? Yeah. <laughs> Jeepers. Um, useless. Yeah. Like, at least. Yeah, I was going to make a really inappropriate joke. Okay, yeah, so I was born in the Nixon administration, man. Um, I was born in the. Yeah, I was. I was. I was. I was for a second, I was worried I was born in the set, the first Nixon administration, but no, I was not. Uh, no, no way, I was. Yeah, you were. Yeah. Yeah. Well, damn it. Were you born <laughs> in the first or second one? I was born right before he was reelected in seventy-two. Okay. So, yeah, um. Lots of people are asking about uh, Sununu's chances um, in the Republican field. Anybody have any strong opinions? Smaller than I'd like them to be. Uh, yeah, yeah. Is that an answer? Yeah. But that I, could be true even if they were really good, right? <laughs> I, I suppose that. But that is not the, the, the means with which I am saying it. Yeah. Um, uh, I... I, I I don't think that uh, the the New England wing of the Rockefeller wing of the Republican Party is the uh, it never was a, a strong force in the party, especially kind of since they opened up the primary process. Uh, it's even I mean, less so now. Do and, we re- uh, do, do, do we honestly think that Sununu is a Rockefeller Republican? And because like like no, but no. But he's more of a moderate and less of a culture warrior than I think people would want him to be. Right. That's the, I I think he's not, he's not angry enough. And, and that's kind of the, um, the proxy that I'm using. Uh, so Rockefeller might not have been the right word, but yeah. Um, I don't think Nixon would have been angry enough for them. Yeah. Well, but see, so that's, this is something that people talk about a lot during the impeachments, which was if Twitter had existed and Fox news had existed, would Nixon have resigned? And there's an interesting argument to be made that Nixon wasn't angry enough. When you say Nixon wasn't angry enough, Nixon was plenty angry. Yes. Just American institutions wouldn't allow him to be honest, as honest, wouldn't allow him to be as angry as he was in public. And now we allow it, right? I mean, like, yeah. Uh, Len Garment would tell these fanta- hilarious stories about, you know, uh, Nixon saying to Henry Kissinger, "Henry, Henry, I want you to, I want you to bomb Hanoi in the morning. I want to wake up and I want to see the picture. I want to see the front page of the New York New York Times saying we bombed North Vietnam or whatever." Or um, uh, Henry, I want you to you know, make sure that we, you know, firebomb Brookings or whatever, all these kinds of things. And all the guys around him was like, yes, Mr. President, of course, Mr. President. And then they wouldn't do it. <laughs> this right? is late night drunk Nixon, right? Yeah, for sure. But yeah. like, um, can you imagine late night drunk Nixon on Twitter? It would be yeah, pretty friggin' awesome. <laughs> because Sean Hannity used to do Twitter after eight o'clock. And I, I get the feeling it'd be a lot like that. Yeah. Sean Hannity um, after eight was the best Twitter ever. Okay. All right. Um, what do you guys think of Nikki Haley's chances of winning the nomination? I'll let Kevin take that one. <laughs> Good. I mean, um, I wouldn't say that, you know, I'm, I'm you know, above 50% on anybody uh, right now. Um, I'm not a huge Nikki Haley fan, um, even though there are aspects of her policy views and some aspects of her demeanor that I wish Republicans had more of. I just kind of uh, don't think anyone who served as a senior figure in the Trump administration should probably be elected to anything ever again. And, uh, or at least that the, the burden of proof for them uh, should be pretty high. 
Um, so I'm kind of anti-Haley on that front. But she's no, she's a she's a reasonably talented politician. Uh, she seems to be pretty good at what she does. She's got some uh, guileful ability to, uh, you know, thread certain needles in a in a in a pretty graceful way. I think between the uh, the hardcore crazies and the less hardcore crazies who will uh, determine who the Republican nominee is. So you know, if there's a if Trump is not in the race and DeSantis sputters for one reason or another. Um, or if, you know, DeSantis and Trump go down in some kind of mutual uh, death lock, which would be uh, not an unlikely uh, outcome, I don't think, then Haley might very well be the one who's, uh, you know, left standing in the best position to uh, to uh, you know, pick up the pieces. And you also have to kind of think about, obviously, who else is going to be in the race. And um, there are a lot of Republicans who want to be president that Nikki Haley looks pretty good in comparison with. Kevin, correct me if if I'm wrong. Is is the the phrase is all hat no cattle? Correct. Seems like a Texas thing. Yeah, I um, I try to avoid those kinds of Texas cliches. Jonah was talking about how George W. Bush pushed the cultural buttons on some people. He pushes mine because (laughs) I'm actually I'm actually from where that accent is supposed to be from. And I've never heard anyone who talks that way. Uh, Okay, well, then I then I won't. I'll have no cattle. (laughs) I I won't say that to describe uh, Uh, Ron DeSantis. Shooter here somewhere. I've got one around, I'm sure. But uh. But I I think there's a non-zero chance that Ron DeSantis wilts. you know, we Marco Rubio was anointed as the uh, the Republican savior. I think there was a literally a Time magazine headline that said the Republican savior in 2014. Um, Scott Walker was seen, at one point was seen as a dominant force in, in Republican politics. Uh, I think DeSantis is in stronger position than either of those two are. But it uh, I've seen enough in, in my relatively short time on this earth i've seen enough uh, dominant so quote unquote dominant republicans uh two years out from an election completely fall on their face um and i think we we've seen he has a great ability to take mainstream progressive whatever you want to call uh the new york times uh that kind of criticism and turn it to his advantage among republican primary voters he has not really faced any criticism from republican media and maybe he won't um but I, at some point that's going to come and it will be a much more difficult test for him and I, I just don't think we've seen him be able to deal with that uh when he's getting asked about why did you shut down uh at all at the beginning of covid why why did you promote the vaccine xyz for for six months um we'll see if if that ends up uh deflating him at all and then in in that case i think nikki haley is well positioned to pick up this pick up the pieces so um first of all ryan's going to text me when biden walks into the 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 chamber so that we'll know we have like a few seconds to get off here um he's going to stop and shake every single person's hand there well <laughs> when he enters the chamber we'll have an hour <laughs> um um so a couple of things one as listeners by now probably know my wife worked for nikki haley does not work for nikki haley now I don't want to speak too out of school, but one of the reasons why my wife stopped working for Nikki Haley is because she just, she was fine for working for Nikki in the administration, but like did not want to be part of a Trumpy thing. And they were going into an election and she was just like, I can't do this. And um, uh, so people can take that for what they will. Um but they still have a good personal relationship, but I have no problem with criticism of Nikki. Um, second, Declan, your point about Ron DeSantis, uh, I, I wrote my LA Times column basically exactly on this point, which will be up on the dispatch tomorrow. Oh. I think the, the the Rubio isn't the best comparison. It's actually, it's, it's, it's Scott Walker, right? Um, it's difficult to explain to people, but like Scott Walker for a time was the golden boy of the right. Um, he was right in the sweet spot of Tea Party GOP issues, right? He took on the labor unions. He won. He won. He won his seat three times in four years, right? Uh, fighting for these sort of, you know, back 
both, you know, the deep state or the administrative state or whatever we want to call it, it used to be the labor unions, that the public sector unions. That was the obsession with the Tea Party GOP. And he discovered that, and he was from an important state, a state that we didn't think, you know, could be Republican, and he turned it. You watch his announcement video where he announces his campaign. It's all about, I'm the one fighter who's actually won, and fight, 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 win, win. You know, it's very itchy and scratchy kind of like Republican Party stuff. And um, and he utterly fizzled after being the front runner in Iowa and New Hampshire because the skill set and the issues, it's very much like Kamala Harris. You know, she spent her time in California not actually being tested against in competitive races outside of a primary. Um, Ron DeSantis is a little different, but at the same time, the stuff that works for him as a governor in a red state, um, that's not going to be the same issue climate that he has when he's actually running for president. And when he has to give like 20 or 30 interviews a day, and he's got a notorious sort of short temper with stuff that he thinks is stupid. So when I just, you know, uh, our colleague Nick Cataggio was shocked when I said I didn't think either Trump or DeSantis were going to be the nominee. Um, I'd still make that bet. I mean, I'm not going to bet, but I would make that, you know, if I had to make that bet, I would bet that neither of them are, um, both just by going by the historical precedents and also just because of the potential for DeSantis to have a glass jaw. If... If Walker offers any cautionary tale to DeSantis, it should be that he should never post. I don't know if you guys remember this from the 2016 primary. Walker every day or most days would post what he was eating for lunch on Twitter. And it was just the <laughs> saddest turkey sandwich, like out of a Ziploc bag, like time to chow down on, on this just really sad sandwich. So I think DeSantis, if he steers clear of that, maybe he'll steer clear of the other stuff, too. I think that front runner status is probably a lot for people to carry for a long time. Yeah. If you're the guy for a year or two years, I think it's to be just, just probably exhausting in, uh, in some ways. And, and Walker, of course, as you mentioned, had a lot of elections to run uh, yeah. as well. And I think by the time he was getting ready to run for president, maybe he was just um, spent, you know, there's only so much um, gas in the tank. Um, Ed Kless asks, asks, Will Donald J. Trump run as an independent if he doesn't get the nomination? Anybody? Bueller? I suspect that he will, yes. If if poetic justice exists, most likely, yeah. Um, that's kind of how this all has to end, <laughs> I think. But I, I, even if he doesn't launch a formal race, he is not going to be sitting at home being like, woo-woo, GOP nominee, I'm so happy that you won and we need right. to be like, he's going to be taking shots at them. He's going to uh, hint that his voters shouldn't go vote for them. And that's in a 50, 50 country that's going to be, or could be more than enough to, uh, to shave off a couple percentage points. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, this question about, will he endorse the nominee if he's not the nominee? Um there's a, you know, the problem was always with like trying to figure out if Trump is doing stuff on purpose with intentionality or <laughs> if it's just, it's Tuesday. So he says something, right? Um, but, you know, the debates are pretty clearly going to ask everybody to say, will you support the nominee, whoever it is? And if you say you won't, then you're not, not going to be allowed to debate. Maybe Trump, maybe this is a, you know, so Trump said it depends. He may not endorse the nominee. It depends who it is. You could read that as him saying, well, that means I'm not going to debate, right? Which is, I don't know you that that's want to. I think that's. Yeah, I, I guess, right? But I mean, like, if he's not in the debates, is he really going to still clean up the, the, in the primaries? I mean, I just it's very hard for me to game out if if that's if that's his actual intent or is it just that he hadn't thought it through and said it because he doesn't want to support anybody but himself and when it comes to debates and trump i kind of think of that the way i've thought about republican presidents and like you know the new york times the washington post and the associated press for a long time i don't understand why they talk to them at all 
Um, they don't really do anything for them. There's all sorts of ways to communicate now. Um, they're obviously hostile. Um, I just don't see why they would talk to them. And, you know, Trump can do all sorts of things to communicate with the people he wants to communicate with. And he'll probably be back on Twitter by then and, uh, and all the rest of it. And uh, it seems to me like a debate would be just a all downside for him. He could screw something up really badly and 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 look foolish or look tired or or something like that. Look low energy, and um, he could repeat he could the sit first the debate with Biden, which was disastrous for him. Right. right. What he likes to do is sit on the sidelines and carve. Right. And uh, and he's good at that. So yeah, maybe he just wants to skip it. Maybe you should yeah. host one of the debates. <laughs> Like ask the questions. That would be awesome. <laughs> At Mar-a-Lago, that would be great. Yeah. <laughs> the the other difference is that in, in the debates in 2016, he was the change candidate, and now he's the status quo, right? And at least within Republican politics, and that he can't go up there and just say like, "I would have this magic plan right. to fix healthcare," which people enough people believed at the time. But now his opponents can say like, "Well, why didn't you do it in the four years that you were president?" and you know, the two of them, when you had both chambers of Congress, um, he's he has to actually defend a record now. Um, and on COVID, that's going to be very difficult for him to do, given kind of how that issue has shifted over the past two years. I, I agree with you, Kevin. I think it's all downside for him to get up there. I'm not saying he. Sh- I think it would be better for the country if he did it. I mean, people should have to face these difficult questions. Um, but I don't I don't think his advisors are going to be all that upset if he says he's not doing it. I think okay. if he ran an independent candidacy and tanked Republican prospects uh, in, in 2024, the upside of that would be that's probably what it will take for the Republican Party to finally liberate themselves from the uh, fantastic uh, posture they have toward this demagogue. And uh, maybe that's not the worst one to lose. So um, this is a conversation that will definitely be continued, but uh, Biden has walked into the room. He's, according to Ryan, he's shaking Supreme Court justices' hands as we speak. All of them. Um, Ryan thinks that he shook Matt Gates's hand, um, which means that um, he that Biden may now, just from the contact, fails a drug test. Um, and... Uh, uh, so we should probably call it a night. I want to thank, uh, first of all, thank you guys for being here. Um, thank you all for for watching, as always. Um, also, we are in the midst of heated, I shouldn't say heated, intense internal discussions about new swag and merchandise for the dispatch. So if people have interesting, cool ideas, uh, please send our way. Um, and uh We'll see you all, or someone will see you all next week. So thanks for watching.